Welcome to News Data's Energy West, a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow. Welcome, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to News Data's Energy West podcast. I'm your host, Dan Catchwell, reporter with Clearing Up, joined by my co-host, Jason Fordney, editor at California Energy Markets. Uh, Today's March, we're recording this on March 4th, and so things might have changed since you, when you listen to this. Uh, today, yeah, every week we're here to try to make folks a little better informed, uh, a little smarter about the Western energy markets and, and the energy industry and what's going on. So Jason, how are you this week? I'm great, Dan. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing well. A uh, little hungry, Good. but uh, I'm doing the fat. I'm actually doing a traditional fast for Lent. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been so busy, though, I haven't had a chance to actually use it to like reflect and use it for the spirituality uh you know but so a little hungry <laughs> besides I, I that i'm imagine. doing really well uh yeah. so you guys had a really busy news week we did it's uh it's been an interesting week you know um it's been a little bit of a dark news week and maybe that's just the overhang from you know the the whole uh european situation but um yeah, kind of heavy. What's going on in, in Europe? I have. Uh, no, just kidding. There's a few things. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, apparently, the nuclear plant hasn't melted down yet. But, um, you know, we yeah. discussed this a little bit. It's uh, a tendency in our profession to focus on the negative. Um, you know, I started out as a, a crime or police reporter uh, where it was really difficult to put a positive spin on crime and violence. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a temptation sometimes to, uh, n- what's the word, to dramatize a little bit, um, but something I try to keep in mind covering, you know, energy has a lot of intersections with wildfires, uh, affordability, human suffering. So, you know, what do you think about that? I, I try to, uh, try to not sensationalize and, um, you know throw in some positive news, but it can be difficult sometimes. Yeah. Especially when you're just pressed for time or trying to cover so much. Uh, and yeah, yeah, it can be, it, sometimes it's just easier because it's more, it's the most, the most obvious thing is the bad news. Right. Um, so that's yeah. a, it's, yes, it, it, it's great when you can put that realistic, pragmatic, not Pollyannish, but, pragmatic um is hopefulness uh or just even good news into the story uh it reminds me of a study i saw a few years ago and it's a study by them because i don't remember who did it um, uh, they, they do a lot of studies <laughs> and, they. uh yeah so it was a study by some reputable source uh looking at how people interact with climate news which is you know pretty depressing most days uh to yeah. your point about you know what what you guys cover uh and if it's just straight like you know wildfires are burning this is the new normal get ready for it mm-hmm. uh that that sort of approach people get pretty fatalistic and check out and um you know the old uh trope that oh i don't read the news because it's just all bad news 
Yep. Uh, but if the stories are framed, same, same news, same substance, but if it's framed uh, additionally with here's what's going on and here's how, what people can do about this. Um, not like activism, but you know, where's not just that it's, well, we're just this deterministic, we're all screwed, but you know, <laughs> like, but yeah. if these steps are taken, that might mitigate this effect or, you know, researchers say blah, blah, blah. Uh, and you know, yeah. So readers uh, have much more positive interaction with the stories and don't come away just feeling depressed. And I, yeah, I um, was a you know newspaper reporter before joining news data and I know what you mean. It's hard to put a positive spin. I've written, I wasn't strictly a crime reporter, but I, I wrote plenty of uh, crime stories and yeah, that research from the, the that they did the study that they did. Uh, I, I try to take that to heart. Don't always remember, keep it in mind, but um, that was really interesting. It's something that newsrooms would, I think, uh, do well to talk about. Yeah. It just, it seems like the climate these days, you know, I I've had friends that's, that said, I don't watch the news. I just stay away. It's all too, too depressing. I used to sort of look down on that. Like, no, you've got to get involved. You know, you got to, you got to be, uh, you know, tuned into what's happening. But at a certain point, I I started to understand that a little bit oh, yeah. more. But um, no, I, I empathize with that. I get it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I feel that way myself sometimes. And then social media, you know, I hang out on Twitter a lot. It's it's a lot of work related stuff. But for some reason, it leads to a lot of negativity. Oh yeah, it's always yeah. I mean, uh, and it's ridiculous right now. It's just it's it's just uh it's kind of a hellscape <laughs> twitter but you know i'm still on there um and and you know the short bursts of commentary don't lend themselves well to reasoned rational discourse so yeah a few different dynamics at play in this i think i will say the I, there there are some really fascinating and uh if you look for experts um, who had, uh, there are some amazing threads that I uh, will read on Twitter that do have that you know, uh, really insightful discourse to it. Well, I guess it's not discourse because oh, yeah. it's not back and forth, but uh, it is there, but yeah. that's like 1% or not even right. that, 0.1%. <laughs> Energy but, Twitter is great. Um, I get a yeah, lot of that's, news. Yeah, that's a good Twitter. example yeah. of where there is uh, he healthy discourse, not too many, you know, hot takes. But yeah. and right now, everybody on Twitter is a foreign affairs Russian <laughs> expert. So yeah, uh, yeah, we should. Let's. We're supposed to keep this short, but um, okay. I always, you know, it's always well, let's get into I, it. fun talking to you. So yeah. Uh, so you guys have, speaking of depressing news, um, why don't you tell us about what's going on in California? <laughs> well, um, it was retail rate week here. I find that every week ends up having a theme. This week, uh, it was retail rates. Um, our lead story, uh, the headline is outrage from electricity consumers over PG&E requested rate hike 
this is getting a lot of play even in um, you know local television media. PG&E in June applied for a rate hike and then amended it. At this point, they want an 18% hike in 2023 with additional increases in 2024, 2025, and 2026. People are already fed up with PG&E and um, you know, the energy bills in California are, uh, several people said it used to be a car payment, now it's approaching a mortgage payment. So uh, yeah, there was a March 1st uh, CPC public hearing that I sat through a few hours of commentary, call, people calling in, it was 100% negative, um, objecting to the rate increase. Here's some quotes. I'm asking the commission, please, please do not approve this rate increase, Rockland resident Brian Ginter said. It's going to hurt the public a lot more than what's being done right now. The utilities rates are already high. His bill is about $500 a month with inflation already making consumer costs higher. Uh, there's different reasons for th this rate increase. Uh, PG&E says there's been significant recent developments in its wildfire mitigation strategies. It's proposing to update its system hardening forecast to underground 10,000 miles of distribution lines. Uh, not cheap. And then they have a new enhanced power line safety settings program that was introduced in 2021. Uh, and they're proposing various ways to mitigate the customer rate impacts of these wildfire mitigation programs by reducing by $1 billion over four years of vegetation management forecast. So a lot of play here. The CPUC is under tremendous public pressure to keep rates down, reduce them, which probably won't happen. Um, I had some interesting comments. One 76-year-old man from Nevada City, where I'm broadcasting from right now, said, quote, when I saw this new, well, let me put it in a Nevada City voice. When I saw this new application in the email that I got, it said 18%. I went ballistic. I went through the roof. You've got to be kidding me, unquote. So, uh, yeah. Uh, a lot of disturbing uh, commentary from electricity consumers about retail rates. And um, there was also an en banc that we covered this week where uh, people were talking about uh, San Diego gas and electric rates. Um, and then the natural gas price increases also exacerbating things. So uh, yeah, a, a lot to talk about with retail rates. And we, we got into it quite a bit in this week's issue. Next on the list, uh, the drought. Um, January and February in California were extremely dry. I can vouch for that. We had a massive storm in January since then, pretty much nothing. Um, and also in Oregon, half, the, half of Oregon is an extreme or in, ex, in extreme or exceptional drought, reduced water supply in the Columbia Basin. Uh, although total water volume in the lower river is predicted to be just below normal. Situation is worse in California than it is in the Northwest. Uh, the manual survey, March 1, at Phillips Station recorded 35 inches of snow depth and a snow water equivalent of 16 inches, which is 68% of average for this location for March. That's according to the California Department of Water Resources. Uh, the agency said January and February will enter records books as the driest documented in state history. As of March 1, the statewide snowpack is 63% of average for the date. So uh, pretty pretty bad winter so far. We've got a few weeks left, and it's going to take a, a March miracle to turn it around. Uh, you never know. 
Uh, and of course, a dry winter leads to a dry summer, much drier ground and vegetation, <clears throat> which really makes wildfires worse. So yeah, the drought situation uh, this year started out with some good snowfall at the beginning of the year and then just kind of faded out. So that that was that. And um, yeah, we got a few more weeks here to turn it around. Also in CM this week, I covered in my bottom lines column, a new report from Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory Laboratory that analyzed the demographics of solar rooftop owners that had some very revealing data on solar-heavy California. According to the data, you are more likely to have solar on your rooftop if you're a non-Hispanic white person, make a six-figure income, attended college, or graduated from one, and own your own home. But things are also changing, according to this report which is entitled Residential Solar Adopter Incomes and Geographic Trends 2022 Update. Uh, this study looked at a sample size of 2.3 million systems, about 82% of all residential systems installed through 2020, and covered 86% of systems installed in 20, I'm sorry, 2020. And California has so much rooftop solar, in fact, 47% of the national uh, solar installation was in California that it tends to skew the, um, the national averages. For instance, with a larger Hispanic and Asian population, it pushes up the national numbers for those demographics. But whites still have the largest share of solar roofs. Whites make up more than 56% of solar adopters nationally, non-white Hispanics 24%, Asians 12%, and Blacks 6%. Nationally, LBNL expects Hispanic ownership of solar systems to grow and the share among white, holds, white households shrink. On income, the median, median annual income of solar adopters nationally was $115,000 in 2020, much higher than the average US median of $63,000 per year. Again, California pushing up those numbers because of its relatively high income levels and its outsized presence in the sample size. Interestingly, almost all households in the study were owner-occupied households, showing that you know renters are still way behind in installing solar for <clears throat> obvious reasons. This really plays into the net metering debate here in California, where uh, the CPUC is saying there's some um, you know inequities that need to be addressed as solar uh, owners tend to be more affluent. This study kind of bears that out. And finally, New Mexico. Uh, this week, New Mexico utility regulators raised the alarm in letters to other state officials saying they'd like to join forces in addressing supply chain disruptions that stand to affect utility service across the state. Uh, in, an, in response to an inquiry by the New Mexico Public Relations Commission, the utilities indicated that supply chain disruptions are affecting the, available, the availability of materials critical for their businesses. They're facing delays in pricing increases on items ranging from conduit to conductor, transformers to trucks. A March 2nd email signed by four of the NMPRC's five members to Diego Arencon, acting secretary of the state's Department of Homeland Security and Emergency Management, referenced another letter to, by the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association to President Biden seeking executive assistance in freeing up supply chain bottlenecks that are affecting utility supplies. Um, a separate second letter signed by the entire commission addressed previous concerns raised by the New Mexico Attorney General uh, about supply chains um, issues 
the Attorney General Hector Balderas has suggested that commission decisions contributed to the de delay of replacement resources for the coal-fired San Juan generating station. Uh, the owner of that plant, Public Service Company of New Mexico, has told the commission uh, it will be extending operations of a coal unit there because replacement renewable resources did not come online due to uh, supply chain issues. Supply chain issues are affecting all kinds of equipment, including fiberglass, wood products, and cross arms, creosote, and PVC conduit, uh, So, uh, and also vehicles. So uh, kind of a crazy situation, New Mexico looking at a very tight summer supply. So that's uh, a round of news from California in the Southwest. And now Dan, uh, fill us in on the Northwest. A little bit of good news up here in the Northwest on uh, when it comes to precipitation. So the Northwest winter started out with some extremely wet weather, but that abruptly ended in early January when a dry spell settled over the region that lasted pretty much almost to the end of February. The dry spell though came with uh, two bits of good news for the region's water supply. One, uh, the cold, dry February weather help preserve our snowpack, which will be good for summer generation, hydropower generation. Mm -hmm. And uh, the late season storm that ended the dry spell soaked the region, uh, dumped snow in the mountains and helped refill some of the region's reservoirs. A uh, Washington state climatologist who my colleague Casey Mahaffey interviewed uh, described the winter weather as uh, whipsawing the region. I, I thought that was a perfect way to describe it. Uh, this extremely unseasonably dry period bookended by extremely wet weather. So, yeah. but good news for the, uh, you know, a little bit of good news in there. So, and speaking of nuclear power plants, the Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems or UAMPS and Excel Energy Nuclear Services uh, have agreed to a process to get them to a contract for running a proposed nuclear power plant at the Idaho National Laboratory site in Idaho Falls. Uh, the proposed plant would put out 462 megawatts using six 77 megawatt small modular reactors. So UAMPS and Excel aim to sign a, the contract later this year, mid-year. Mid aim also to have the plant operational in 2030. There's a lot of interest in small nuclear modules uh, or small modular nuclear reactors, especially, uh, you know, as providing stability to the, and reliability to the power grid in the country, uh, in around the country as utilities decarbonize and bring on huge loads of intermittent resources. Uh, let's see. Also, Oregon fishermen and federal regulators seem to be headed for a collision course. The Bureau of Ocean Energy Management and the state of Oregon are looking at three large areas off uh, Oregon's coast to develop offshore wind. Uh, the Bureau of Ocean Man Energy Management estimates that the three areas, which cover 2,200 square miles, have a potential capacity of 17 gigawatts. 
but uh, some fishermen in the States say that building offshore wind would devastate the seafood industry there. Perhaps the bigger obstacle facing developing offshore wind uh, in Oregon or off Oregon is the transmission transmission system. And there's just a few points to interconnect right now uh, with bringing this, to bring the energy from the offshore wind sites to the big main uh, uh, transmission arteries that are located inland running along the I-5 corridor. Uh, right now, the uh, National Renewable Energy Laboratory, they did a study in the fall, and they say right now there's only enough transmission capacity to handle that 2.6 gigawatts uh, of nameplate capacity. Uh, so it's Oregon offshore wind. It's some of the strongest, most consistent wind in the in North America. But that certainly the transmission system issue constraints has to be solved to really make the most of it. Yeah. Speaking of the North Pacific, a Russian research vessel is still participating in a massive international expedition to research uh, salmon populations in the North Pacific Ocean, but the U.S. did pull one of the or the U.S. scientists that was going to be on the Russian research vessel, uh, Tinro, and without the uh, without a U.S. scientist on board, the Russian vessel can't conduct research within American exclusive economic zone. So that will curtail the area that it can, uh, obviously, the it'll shrink down the area that for research that had been assigned to this vessel initially. But uh, yeah, the scientists from Canada, Japan, and the Republic of Korea, Russian Federation, and the United States are uh, still going ahead. And that'll be really valuable research. Uh, just a couple last things. There's the Washington legis legislature is considering two bills, lower building greenhouse gas emissions, uh, and they could pass next week. And Pacific Corps is asking the Oregon PUC uh, to approve a 6.6% general rate increase, which would bring in an additional $82.2 million. Uh, part of the reasons they've given is to cover wildfire mitigation costs. And that's it for the Northwest. You can read more about those stories and uh, stories that Jason mentioned and lots more at our website, newsdata.com. And uh, find us on Twitter. Uh, we're at CU Newsdata and at CEM Newsdata. And uh, Jason, any last words? I really was interested in their offshore wind piece. I think it's going to be a really tough nut to crack on the West Coast, you know, uh, coastal landowners tend to be wealthier. Californians love their beaches. You know, as far as California, we do have a little bit of transmission infrastructure uh, that will be at the Diablo Canyon site. But I think it's going to be a long time, if or ever, you'll see wind turbines off the coast. I, I covered Cape May and Connecticut for years and years. Never got built. It's just, uh, it's a tough one. It's expensive and uh, effects on fishing, 
and uh, ocean views. So yeah, we'll see on that. A lot of effort coming from the Biden administration. Hope maybe pushing it forward. But that's uh, that's about all I have. Yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of activity from the Biden administration, and there. I mean, there is stuff moving ahead. The uh, last month, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management that does not roll off the the tongue no. uh, held a. They auctioned off. I I want to say land, but it's at sea. I don't know what they auctioned off right leases to ocean. Yeah. Uh, in the New York bite where, you know, uh, so offshore where the coastline turns from going North and then, you know, very hangs that right angle, 90 degree angle turn, um, and at New York city there with the, uh, kind of pivot point. So they, they auctioned off leases to develop that area and they, uh, brought in $4.4 billion dollars. Wow. Uh, for those leases. So there's a lot of money, uh, you know, and I, you're right to your point, there's going to be a lot of obstacles, but there definitely is some big money interested in offshore wind. Yeah, so it looks like it. Stay tuned listeners keep coming back and uh, check us out for more coverage of, of that. And, and uh, a lot of other things, Jason, why don't you take us out? All right, that's it from us here at Energy West. You can find more at newsdata.com. I'm Jason Fordney with Dan Catchpole. Have a great week. You've been listening to News Data's Energy West, a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow.